Hello, welcome to the extra credits of Asteroid City. I'm Trey. And I'm Kelsey. Our first Wes Anderson podcast is here. I'm so excited. We've been waiting a long time to talk about Wes on this podcast. I'm really excited to talk about him today. How do we talk about Asteroid City? (laughs) (laughs) This is a very good movie. This is a story within a story within a story (laughs) about confronting the unknown, among many other things that I think we'll get into today. It is a very meta surreal film and I think technically this is probably Wes Anderson's most impressive live action movie since Grand Budapest I think Mm, okay I mean maybe you don't agree yeah I don't know we'll we'll get into it (laughs) I guess we'll get into that um you know I I have a feeling this film won't connect to everyone it's it's hard not to respect it at the very least there's so much going on in this like just technically they are doing so much. They're shifting yeah. camera angles and aspect ratios, a lot like Grand Budapest, which is why it reminded me of that film. They're splitting screens in certain points. They're using 360-degree swivels on tracking shots, which is not abnormal to West movies, and you can really feel that him and the cinematographer, Robert Yeoman, have mastered that chaotic vibe. We've come, <laughs> yeah. I guess we've grown to love and expect from their work at this point. We even have some stop motion in this movie, yeah, which yeah. I'm really happy to see. Like, It felt like a half live action stop motion Wes Anderson film where it feels like I'm getting excited for that while watching this movie. Like last night when we saw this, I was thinking about how seamlessly he was blending these two styles of half, mo- uh, of half stop motion and live action that I started getting excited for the future of what he can do with these two styles. Well, what's so funny is we were talking, we went to like happy hour before we saw this movie with our friend James mm-hmm. and for our longtime listeners, you know, James from our Spider-Man ranking podcast. Yeah. But we were talking about uh, like how we would we were still talking about Spider-Man. <laughs> we were like, what yeah. if we um, we were drafting like different Worlds. directors yeah. yeah, that could make a Spider-Man movie? And I picked Wes Anderson. Yes. And we were talking about like, what if there was a blend of stop motion and real people? Yeah. And like, how would that go with a Spider-Man movie? Because yeah. there's all these tropes and storylines that we are familiar to us that they could play on. That's the next thing that Spider-Verse has to do. Yeah. got to make a stop motion animated movie. Yeah. But I, <laughs> I loved the different styles blended here. And I, I mm-hmm. think you're right. Like it feels like even more so that Wes Anderson and his team have like mastered this kind of combination mm-hmm. of all his different uh, stylistic choices. And I love the stop motion in particular here. Like it was so unexpected and just really delightful. Like yeah. I, I, you definitely get that West moment where you can't help but smile yeah. in the theater. Like I still have the big grin on my face, like thinking about one of the major sequences in yeah. the movie. Totally. And no spoilers right now. Yeah. Yeah. No spoilers for like the um, next 10 minutes. And then we're getting to spoilers. There's yeah. a lot to talk about. Yeah. And then other than that, you know, I always enjoy the ratio change up mm-hmm. and we still have that kind of dollhouse aesthetic that's signature to Wes's yeah. worlds, yeah. right? In the Asteroid City set that people have seen in the trailers too. Yeah. But this movie was definitely even more surreal. I was I not think. expecting that. Yeah. Than, than anything else than I've seen in other things. I mean, yeah. we have that story within a story structure and I know that's not necessarily like a shock to Anderson fans or yeah. be, her surreal stories aren't a shock. Like that's a major draw actually for a lot of fans, myself included. Yeah. But Asteroid City was definitely on a different level of like Anderson com- 
like contemplation and existentialism. Yeah. <laughs> and and he's so, really in his bag. Like you can feel yeah. him. He's he's done a lot to get up to this point. He's made movies for almost twenty five plus years, I think. Yeah. So you can feel that he is now in like an a kind of elite tier of filmmaker right now. Yeah. It felt like one for him or yes. something this one, right? So while we, still being great. Yeah, yeah. We still have like the architecture of a world that feels familiar with Wes Anderson, mm-hmm. but I'm excited to talk about the like other stylistic choices that I thought were different here where he's kind of like pummeling the audience with existential thoughts <laughs> with less recovery time that he normally gives audiences That's with a good way humor. To put it. Yeah. Um, it felt more deliberate here. Like, there are moments usually in his moments that are moments in his movies that we kind of come up for air mm-hmm. and have absurdism and humor. And there's less of that in here. There's more like dry humor moments. So I, I'm interested yeah. to see how general audiences react, but let's go ahead and talk about our non spoiler thoughts yeah. before we get into our spoiler. Reaction. Well, I love what you just said about the less recovery time. Cause that is what it feels like with this movie. I'm like trying to, I'm trying to come up from, from water and take a breath. And I, and it keeps on, it's not the editing. Cause it really isn't a lot of sharp edits in Wes Anderson films, but it's more so that it's hard to talk about without spoiling, but it's more so that the story within the story within the story yeah. is getting more and more complex to the point where <laughs> right. it's almost purposely convoluted. And I guess we'll get to that. But as for a non-spoiler plot, I guess I'll say that Asteroid City is literally a city in the middle of a desert in a retro futuristic American town set in the 1950s. And the name of the city comes from an asteroid that crashed there thousands of years ago. Right. We see that in the trailer. Right. And it's become a tourist attraction of sorts, I guess. And there is this backdrop of government surveillance because it's in the fifties. There's a lot of paranoia around communism, atomic bomb chaos. And I think there is like a sense of basically dread hanging over everyone's head (laughs) in this movie. And I think many people will probably project like pandemic quarantine qualities onto this movie. But I know for a fact that this script has been in Anderson's head before 2020. So even though we probably can't rule out some kind of pandemic influence on the script, I don't think we need to talk too much today about quarantine or pandemic or, uh, or that specifically in in this This podcast conversation, because I have lockdown story. I have seen reviews do that. And I just think it's kind of lazy. Like, I don't think that's what's happening in this movie. So even though some of it might've been pandemic inspired, I think there are probably some more movie inspirations that we can talk about in the spoilers, Mm. um, section that don't have to do with the pandemic, but everyone should see this movie opening night. If they can, if you all trust us on this podcast, just trust us that this is probably one of the more impressive Wes Anderson movies. It is my favorite Wes Anderson movie in over a decade. And wow. I went from liking it a bit last night to waking up this morning, preparing for this reaction pod and finding myself like deeply respecting the film. And I'd go as far as to say, I love it. And it is a movie that I recommend people sit on before judging it because it is it is complex. And I don't mean that in a pretentious way. I guess it's inherently pretentious, but like whatever. <laughs> it, there is just a lot to untangle with the different plot threads. And once you let it sit or even see it a second time, because this is a reaction podcast. So we're going to see it a second time next week, hopefully. I think this movie and its ideas, once you kind of let it sit, will become very transparent and pretty smart. So I recommend anyone who checks this movie out to try their best to accept the, how do I put it? Like, parameters of the film yeah. and how it starts like they're almost like the rules like don't try and figure out the double meaning of the story and don't try to unpack the rules that are being set uh just 
kind of sink into it, immerse yourself, try your best to wait for that deeper unpacking until after the film is over, and then come back to listen to us for a spoiler conversation. Uh, but as you can probably tell, Kels, I liked it a lot. loved it. Yeah. Um, and I'm getting the vibe that, cause we haven't really talked yeah, about it. I don't it. know <laughs> if I'd use the word love. I think okay. you, you definitely liked it more than me. And even and, James. Yeah. Not to speak for him, but I mean, he kind of shared similar sentiments to you last night when we talked about like for two minutes. Well, I, I think we actually had different, it was really interesting cause we didn't have the same take on certain aspects of the movie when yeah. we were talking, when you went to the bathroom, <laughs> but like oh, after okay. the movie, but we both didn't like it as much as you, but okay. um, I still like liked it and respect it. I think it was me having to get over it not being just another like Anderson story in yeah. his collection that felt the same. So I was doing a lot of like kind of trying to take away my expectations as I was watching. So, I mean, I liked it and I can't help but like love and respect any unique West story, yeah, right? sure because I want him to make as many movies as he can and tell yeah. whatever story he'd like. But I think I, I need to see it one more time to really know how I feel about it in, in general, but also in like the West lineup um, that you're talking about. And I genuinely don't mean that as a cop out, mm -hmm. like, um, like, Oh, I don't know how I feel about it. I need to see it one more time to like make my, my opinion public. It's not, right. it's really not that it's, I liked it, but it's just so much thrown at the audience throughout the movie and I and we're also just to tell the listeners who are new listeners because we, we are doing a reaction pod before basically anybody is seeing this true we're not There's, Wes yeah, not Anderson like stands we're not like those Wes sure Anderson, we love Wes movies of but course like any normal hopefully film lover yeah, does definitely not like Wes experts that people people I really like, deep dive yeah, his whole like right. history as a person and his filmography and sure yeah. but we're doing something similar here that I did like with Luca Guadagnino or with Ryan Johnson earlier this year that we or that we both did with Noah Baumbach like we went and watched all the Wes Anderson films some of the early Wes that we hadn't seen before like prepping for this movie and prepping for this podcast mm -hmm. and I watched a lot of inspirations from Wes Anderson over the past month and a half and I have grown to be like maybe I am turning into like he's a fanboy <laughs> a little bit like he is one of my favorite directors but I just wanted to say that because uh I was just going into this expecting I'd like it like I did the French Dispatch if gotcha. that makes sense and so I wasn't expectations expecting, were just like yeah through neutral. the roof a little bit for well Wait, what? Or, sorry I <laughs> I went through the roof of my expectations oh, okay, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Was like, okay. no 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 so your expectations were a little neutral yes. mine were extremely high yeah. I think on the drive home, and, and that is because we had watched his whole filmography, and I was like, I can't wait to see what he does next, yeah. especially the genius of like Fantastic Mr. Fox and some other things in his, uh, just in his collection of, of movies. But yeah. I think on our drive home, you know, we we weren't talking about the movie, but you did talk about how you were you were thinking about how this would rank next to Bo is Afraid, which yes. is a similar like existential nihilistic, nihilistic, narcissistic yet like therapeutic journey of a movie. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think I enjoy for, for listeners, this is still like non-spoiler, but, um, it, like I enjoy the absurd humor in Bo is afraid more okay. than I think like this movie focused more on dry humor. Um, okay, yeah. Which West movies do. They are pretty dry. That's, that's true. But I do feel like there is elevated or, or like, um, there is exaggerated moments uh, about life, like observations of yeah, life that yeah. make me laugh more in other West movies than in this one. And this one, I felt like I was just kind of like inundated with like 
all these lines like from the script and then I had dry moments. So, okay, yeah. And, and that again, like isn't negative. It's just a different style. I felt like like a slight turn, not really anything like hu- a huge change in West movies, but that mm-hmm. and that's all fine as far as like getting a lot of dialogue. I just wasn't able to process it honestly as quickly as you. I think like I was having a very chill night and I was looking at things in the background, like laughing at these small details. And then mm-hmm. I would come back to the conversation. I was like, Oh, I like missed some of this conversation. And so, yeah, I I think I was just probably doing also besides that, like too much questioning of like what I was watching or what Wes was trying to do in this particular conversation. Because like you said, Wes does do stories within a story Mm -hmm. in his other movies, but in this one in particular, it was like more complex. And I also, he's giving you a Wes Anderson movie, but he's also almost doing like a, behind the scenes look at how to make a Wes Anderson yeah, movie. Yeah, it's like a, a Wes Anderson movie about a Wes Anderson movie. Right, and for non-spoiler people, people who have not seen it, that probably makes no sense. Yeah, and, and it but will you'll once get you see it. it. And, yeah. and so like I wonder, uh, when I was wondering like what he was doing, I don't think I was giving myself over fully to the movie. So I think that okay. is good advice to for Wes fans, for not Wes fans to kind of just go and like you said, like accept the rules of the world. Mm-hmm. Um and so I think this is what we should do. Let's make, well, maybe we can make a live decision okay. on Mike. Um, I think that we should talk about it as a reaction right now. Okay. Um, and then because there is like so much, maybe we can do like a deeper dive. Maybe Next not like, and we're not going to explain every line or anything, but kind of dive deeper into it once we see it again. And then that would be fun. Okay. And yeah. have that kind of conversation. And then regardless though, for listeners, uh, we will still do our Wes Anderson ranking podcast uh, next, next week, week as well. I can't wait for that. Okay. That so three West pods. All right. I love it. Are you down for that? I am down because okay. like when we did Bo is afraid, I kind of regretted not doing like a let's revisit hereditary Midsommar on the oh, podcast yeah. before doing yeah. Bo. Cause we did a two part Bo pod. So I like the idea of doing something similar here today. So yeah, let's, Let's get into the movie, right? Okay. Yeah. Um, well, before we get into spoilers, should we talk about our theater experience? Oh, holy before? Shit. <laughs> <laughs> so we now, do you want to set this up? Yeah. So we went okay. to the Alamo, which by the way, we love Alamo. Um, maybe our, our favorite theater. We love and Angelica too. That's a that, great one nearby. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. And so anyway, the sound wasn't working. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like a special screening with a live Q and A at the end. And the sound wasn't working. They kept like restarting it. I was feeling really bad for them. Like the stress they must be feeling up, yeah, up there. Yeah, because the Q&A, they might have missed it. Exactly. If it took any longer. But it everyone. Took like, what was it like 15 minutes? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But everyone was freaking out. Just like booze and. Yeah. It's and hard like not to be hyperbolic. I wish yeah. James was here to help us because it was like, it really was. It was just really intense. It, was just, it only takes one like insecure man in the crowd to go sound yeah and like all the other men are like, oh, finally in. someone said it sound turn the sound up <laughs> which is a, a great segue like to the movie honestly um it, <laughs> i felt like if wes anderson saw our crowd he would get like immediately depressed about yeah. the state of movies <laughs> yeah. right now and this was like a big wes crowd because they came for an early screening yeah and it seemed like everybody i mean we got there pretty early and the crowd was Everyone already was there. there we were yeah. like the late ones and we were already like 10 minutes early yeah yeah. But yeah, it was just, uh, it, besides that though, there was one funny person who, the, when the Alamo uh, kind of like dots go over and the theme song, he's yeah. like, da, da, na, na, na. Yeah, someone did the <laughs> Alamo music. And then I think what was more stressful to me than even the sound not working, because that is just life, was the Q&A after. Because we got oh thrown God. into the Q&A late right. and it's not a big deal, but 
it came like halfway through. So we missed all the questions about what the movie was really about to Wes Anderson, which is what we were interested in hearing. And instead we like got thrown into what probably sounds like fun, but it was also very awkward. A Jeff Goldblum monologue about just movies and the history of film. And he was being extra quirky and it was like very like uncomfortable because the rest of the cast and crew were like just kind of hand palming the whole time. Like, or like, I guess, like the faces were in their hands yeah. and it was just, uh, it was a lot. And then we, it was just cringy. Yeah. Right. And then the guy who was asking the questions didn't really know how to go about, which I felt bad for him. Like transitioning, like out of the what long, was going on yeah. with this monologue <laughs> from Goldblum. Cause it's Goldblum. I mean, yeah. it's hard to stop him from talking. And also he's like an icon. And also there's like 12 people on stage because this movie is stacked with people. Right. So then he like asked Jeffrey Wright, he's like, let's just go down the line. Why do you want to be in a Wes Anderson movie? And Jeffrey yeah. Wright's like, uh, putting okay. someone on the spot to yeah. like talk about. And then basically they all have to feel like they have to say everything they love yeah. about Wes Anderson and, Which and Jeffrey Wright. why they basically want to be hired again. It was like, so awkward <laughs> credit to Jeffrey Wright for poetically speaking about Wes Anderson it was and just an incredible like couple of minutes yeah. he gave us about why he loves being in an Anderson film well he's great there is something that I was gonna talk about on our ranking pod but I'll go, I guess I'll just go ahead and drop it here as we're gonna get into spoilers and mm-hmm. talk about probably our like relationship a little bit to Wes. Yeah. Maybe um, what his in, movies do so in well. the French dispatch. It was also a stacked like live Q and a, uh, because there's so many people in it. And Jeffrey Wright said something about how he loves Wes's writing. Um, and when he is learning the dialogue for his part, mm-hmm. he feels like it gets stuck in his head, kind of like a song would and lyrics. And I was like, that that's is a great, exactly how I think well, of his movies. So I was thinking I, of rap music when I, when I think of Wes Anderson in terms of like layering of, of lines. Oh, and it's yeah. so interesting that you well, said that. Well, so what I was thinking actually was like, besides dialogue, cause I never really like remember dialogue except for maybe like one funny moment that is like yelled by a character. Yeah. Um, I feel like whenever I leave a West movie, I'm kind of seeing the world through his like, director lens mm-hmm. right i'm seeing like these quirky things happen or like i notice like the way people are talking mm-hmm. um is layered in a certain a certain way that west writes but more so it feels like when a song gets stuck in your head it's like his vibe it gets stuck in my head yeah. like a song would and yeah. i'm like seeing the world that way playing over and over again for a while so yeah it i thought that like was a cool way to put it jeffrey wright definitely has a great understanding of why you should work with west so the question was actually perfect for him I just want to read quickly what Wright said last night because I wrote it down as immediately after he said it because I thought it was, I thought, pretty like timely and like what's going on in the world currently with film culture. Jeffrey Wright said this to why he works with Wes. He says, I hate conformity. It's all throughout our culture right now. Some precedent that everyone is trying to set and then line up with it with an idea that they think is theirs based on someone else's opinion on what you should do. Wes is a nonconformist as a filmmaker. So fuck you if you tell Wes <laughs> what to do. He is his own original thing. He's just a rare dude. And I thought that was really nice. And yeah. it, it sounds like a very non-Wes Anderson thing to say. Like, yeah. I don't think Wes would ever say that about himself. But it was cool to hear someone stick up for him making a surreal movie like this um, without even like anybody pushing back on the mo- movie. Because I'm assuming people are across the board liking this or respecting it at the very least because the critic scores are pretty good yeah. and audience scores early audience. But I, scores I too. can see people. Um, I can see people kind of zagging on this one. Like emotionally, because, I think so. Yeah. yeah. I, even if they're Wes Anderson, it's hard fans. to doubt the style though. 
that, sure. Yeah, it's it's hard to movie, not respect it, but I yeah. can see people being like, I don't know if I like loved that one in the same way I, I do his other films. Okay. Let's go ahead and get into spoilers and our reaction um, from just seeing this last night at an early screening. Let's do it. What do those pulses indicate? What? Oh, the beeps and blips? We don't know. Some of our information about outer space may no longer be completely accurate. Anyway, there's still only nine planets in the solar system as far as we know, Billy. Except now there's an alien. What's happening now? I don't know. I don't like the way that guy looked at us. The alien. How did you... How did look? Like we're doomed. Maybe we are. I've just informed the president. How long can they keep us in Asteroid City legally? The world will never be the same. That's an alien doing Jeffy Jacks. That's an alien in a top hat. What's out there? The meaning of life. Maybe there is one. Are you married? I'm a widower. But don't tell my kids. You're saying her mother died three weeks ago. Let's say she's in heaven. Which doesn't exist for me, of course, but you're Episcopalian. In my loneliness, I've learned to give complete and unquestioning faith to the people I love. I don't know if that includes you, but it included my daughter and your four children. Sometimes I think I feel more at home outside the Earth's atmosphere. Oh, wow. Me too. They're strange, aren't they? They're children. Compared to normal people. Yes, that's correct. It's true. Mm-hmm. Freight train, freight train. This just in from the president. He's furious. <laughs> <laughs> Jeffrey Wright was great in the few moments he got in this movie. I think that movie. was maybe one of my favorite lines. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. So I think we should talk about why we love Wes Anderson movies before jumping into spoilers. Yeah. Because we have not really talked about any of the trademarks that we appreciate about his films on our pod. And yeah, I think that I think so. we're obviously going to unpack a lot of that on our ranking podcast, maybe a little bit more about the history of Wes and why he does what he does in all of his movies. Yeah. But I think a lot of why I love his filmography so much really clicked for me after 24 hours now with asteroid city in my mind, or I guess we're almost at 24 hours. Mm -hmm. So first off, Anderson often plays with a tragicomic tone and he does that through a few different genres that I guess are kind of through lines of all of his work. You have crime, as a, a major through line, you that have. That is true. I guess I didn't realize that. But yeah, all of his characters are like, it's either crime or some sort of like social deviance. Right. They're always trying to. Plots. Yes. They are kind of outliers in society or trying to steal things to be seen. I mean, there's a character in Asteroid City who is having people dare him to do things. Yeah, it's like, dare <laughs> me to touch the button, dare me to climb the cactus. They're like, please don't. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and when he's provoked, he's like, I just want the universe to see me. Yeah. And that is something that like, obviously Anderson is still sympathetic to his characters because he does feel bad for them because they are tragic characters. And then he also has characters who are either revolting or they are creating a revolution, like a mini revolution, because he has movies with ideas about systems and institutions, like an Isle of Dogs comes to mind or other ones too, Mm -hmm. or Grand Budapest even. So he does use this like crime, caper, revolt, revolution, multi-genre storytelling to explore this very odd tone that he's always playing with. And specifically, he uses characters or writes characters And their motivations for breaking norms and acting out in like crime movies, for example, because they are they feel like underseen men in society. They're often like insecure, fragile men who are committing crimes to be seen. Yeah. A lot of his movies feel like a comment on masculinity or like the absurdity (laughs) within like the idea of trying to prove yourself or for sure, but still wanting connection. Yeah. There's a lot of like satirical elements about suburban sad middle-class white people that again he does sympathize for with because they do they often these characters are coming from tragic backgrounds or have had something happen to them that's pretty depressing Mm -hmm. 
And that's where he plays with that tra- tragedy and humor so well. So something I noticed in Asteroid City is that I think it kind of like perfectly encapsulates all of these different character motivations or how he writes his characters because the characters in this film are trying so deeply to like understand connection and the idea of like this cosmic need or existential need to connect to people and why that is that we have those needs and maybe the ways that we create to survive in the world. And this movie may be like creating a play or creating a story yeah. or for some of the kids, like creating like these, uh, the scientific inventions that they're they're making Mm -hmm. um, to survive in the world. So I thought that was a really something, something about this movie is a little bit more pure in how he's writing these characters that I found refreshing. Yeah, a lot of his movies focus on like found family aspects, right? Yes. And also trying to like prove something mm-hmm. or please someone, especially like the father narrative, father-child narrative, especially in Big tension. Big dad problems in yeah. a lot of his movies, yeah. <laughs> exactly. In these surreal like and absurd humorous ways that yeah. he, he tells the stories. But I, I think that you're right in the idea that of what you're talking about, maybe with like the pure aspect here and that a lot of the characters in his previous movies are trying to understand the narrative they've been told about the world. Mm-hmm. And in this movie, Asteroid City, it feels like uh, they are more so trying to find out what their place is in the world, Yeah, um, if that makes sense. And I know yeah. that's not like a, a hardcore distinction, right? That's a blurred line throughout all of his movies. But here, especially like we have lines that, of course, feel like they're in a play because they are in this world. But the kid says uh, towards the end, like, why did the aliens steal our asteroid? You know, was it ours in the first place? Right. And is there a, a meaning to life? Maybe there is one out there. There you is know? something so, more like refreshingly innocent about a lot of these characters, even though they're actors playing the characters. Right. But even when we meet the <laughs> actors, they do seem like innocent people, which is yeah. nice. It is different. Um, and then obviously outside of like tone and genre, stylistically, Wes Anderson is an icon in yeah. filmmaking, like not just his soundtracks, which are very popular and his needle drops, which I'm surprised we didn't get too many in this movie, even though the score is a lot of fun. Alexander Desplat, who is, is the composer who works on a lot of his movies, does an incredible job in mm-hmm. all of his films. But aesthetically, I think Anderson obviously is singular in his unique vision of the world and how he plays with the idea of symmetry yeah, and using symmetry to explore ways people try to like cope with chaos by trying to create order or organization in an ever-changing world, which is really clear in this film, which is why, like, in his career, he's made intricate set pieces on films like Life Aquatic or Grand Budapest that are so hyper-detailed and memorable because I think the specificity of those sets are almost kind of like satirizing the tensions humans feel when they're trying to organize chaos. He's almost making fun of his own need to organize chaos. Yeah. I've never really thought about it in that way, but that makes a lot of sense. And it also makes sense that he wanted to be an architect growing up. I think his mom was, and his dad was like in advertising. Okay. Um, And then he wanted to be a writer before a filmmaker. But yeah, so that makes sense. And as far as like how he has seen just shapes like mm-hmm. probably from growing up from uh, learning from his mom and being around his mom. But yeah. I love that idea of trying to organize chaos. Yeah. Well, I think he would probably hate, I don't know if he said anything about the TikTok trend. I think he would probably hate that because it's almost like people are not understanding the point of his cemetery, which is that's how he's coping with the world. Like the reason why he makes all of this symmetry happen in his films and why everything is so hyper detailed is because he's really stressed out (laughs) or at least that is how, sorry, that's how I interpret his movies. I don't think he's actually ever said that on the record, but that is how I 
kind of consume all of his films at this point. I don't think I thought that until after Asteroid City. So this is kind of a work in process right now of how I'm dealing with like interpreting <laughs> his movies. But even like his stop motion films, like Mr. Fox and Isle of Dogs, he seems to go back to that hyper specific design to continue this theme of finding certainty in anarchy. Even the plots of those films represent this tension he's exploring about the human condition so often. And I think I interpret Wes that way because, you know, we just revisited all of them. And, you know, some of those early movies we just saw for the first time. And I've been watching, yeah, yeah, like Bottle Rocket or even Tenenbaums. Like we didn't see a lot of early Wes because Moonrise came out when we were in high school. So I think we... Mm -hmm only saw Fantastic Mr. Fox and Moonrise as like the first West films. That's how we were introduced to him in that yeah. middle chapter of and his And people, life. let us know what your first West movie was. I'm so oh. interested. I feel like it really influences. That's a good Spotify Q&A. We'll put yeah. that on Spotify. What, like what you like, I think, at least for me. Yeah. But like I said, I don't think I totally understood Wes's whole vibe until last night, like Asteroid City. And I think this movie really clicked everything together for me. Like I was just like, I, it made sense. Like the Wes Anderson filmography made a lot more (laughs) sense to me. Like the idea that he is just an overthinking, self-aware, hyper-questioning, obsessive person making (laughs) things like that's just very relatable. So I'm just increasingly loving his movies. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I've like appreciated them even on rewatch and just like Obviously, I mean, we, I, I loved Bo's Afraid. Like, I love any kind of absurd uh, story about the human condition that has humor. So, uh, yeah, especially but, in a nightmare like that movie. Yeah. yeah. And, but to your point or, earlier about this idea of Wes Anderson, like, creating, um, or I guess exploring tension and mm-hmm. the attempt to try to organize that chaos. Um, yeah. <laughs> or, and that is the reason for his like hyper organized set pieces in his movies. That makes a lot of sense to me. And I, I haven't like really had that click for me in certain ways. I just obviously love looking at his movies. <laughs> um, I'm sure that is a, a part to do with it. I mean, he wears a suit everywhere, but I just now after Asteroid City, I'm assuming because there's so much anxiety in this movie, that's like an undercurrent of Asteroid City. Yeah. But now I'm just assuming that he wants everything so organized because it keeps him sane. It must be like a contributing factor, right? Yeah. Like I, I love one of my favorite like signature sequences of Wes Anderson movies is when we zoom out and we see the kind of like dollhouse image mm-hmm. of all the characters totally. in their rooms, right? And you can like peer into these mundane little boxes and jump to different rooms and characters <laughs> and the absurd things that like make up their world. And so like <laughs> we similarly see that uh, that kind of order in all of his movies or that structure in all of his movies yeah. uh, where his characters are also like perfectly placed in the frame while giving this funny dark monologue. And so we kind of get those like quirky, symmetrical yet like a train wreck is also happening. Yes. <laughs> and I think that's like what's so attractive and unique about his movies because we do have that juxtaposition of a depressed character or existential themes with this hyper-organized or pretty image, which is kind of mm-hmm. highlighting, again, like what we've been talking about, the absurdity of the human project in different ways. So I, I, I like that idea. It's reminding me of the image from, because we just recently watched the other night, The French Dispatch, where we have this great image, this beautiful image of ennui. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this man is like uh, kind of cleaning the water uh, of the river there. Oh, you're talking about France. the Owen Wilson? And somebody's like poking part? a dead body. Yeah. Like in he the was, water. He was talking about like everything that's going on in the city. And then yeah. he was talking about how they're, uh, which is also a 
like happens in every movie, mm-hmm. like a suicide, like yeah. eight times in, in the city. It just, yeah. like, he kind of like breezes past all these really dark, yeah. right? Like aspects of the world. He gives you like a really romantic image with like humorous dialogue and then shows you something really unfortunate. Yeah. And that's something that is a, a through line of his work too. Aside from his themes and design intentions as a writer director, he also has this like deeply embedded history of literary and I think design influence in all of his work. It's like his directing lens is an encyclopedia of style and structure. Yeah. If that makes sense. Like I haven't really heard him talk too much because I guess I'm still like in prep mode for our bigger West pod, but in listening to him talk a few times, it seems like he's been influenced by several forms of art uh, across different mediums. And it seems like his knowledge for all those different forms of art is a little bit overwhelming, but like, Obviously, the net result are these fantastic films. And I think that's why we get such different types of structure in a lot of his movies. I'd say all of his movies like have some kind of weird structure that I've really never seen before in other films. Maybe some like French films. I think Truffaut comes to mind, obviously. Mm-hmm. But like, for example, like the t- having an author or a narrator telling the story yeah, of your film. Yeah, that's true. That is something that happens in all of his movies. Yeah, it's it's a constant. And those narrators are often describing the characters in the script as like lost people that need help, mm-hmm. which is ironic how like you feel as the audience when you're watching <laughs> one of the films for the first time, or I guess even the seventh time if you're really unpacking the movie still, because you feel kind of lost with the characters in a comical way. And the author or narrator will often like tell you a story in one of Anderson's films and you start to realize that Wes is like nesting stories within stories yeah. to kind of purposely complicate his movie, which I think some people can interpret that decision as pretentious because like not everybody loves Wes Anderson. And I understand sure. that because I think they look at him trying to like create stories within stories as an ego issue. But I, I think I look at it more now as something is like, a director who's trying to purposely convolute a story because that is how real life feels. Yeah. It feels like an overly convoluted story. Yeah. And I love <laughs> the kind of like narrative that's driving over it to make it humorous with mm-hmm. the narrative that the characters have that yes. is also in conflict with the other characters in the story. Yeah. And I haven't uh, prepped my Wes Anderson ranking doc. Like I've, I, after we watched them, I've like had a sort of, you know, I have something in mind of like where they will sure. fall. Um, but I think on the ranking pod, we should do our like favorite narrator. Oh, from the movie. I love that. Should we do that? Okay. Yeah. Wow. We'll save it. Now I'm thinking I don't want to spoil anything. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Um, what else? What else do we love about Wes? Uh, I think in terms of feeling a little bit like I feel like I don't know where I'm going in a lot of his stories. I like the feeling yeah. of being almost like destabilizing an audience by design. I like the fact that someone who understands that they are provoking audiences uh, and I feel like I'm in the safe hands of someone who is a little bit transgressive with like how they're telling a story and they're kind of like knocking you flat by giving you surreal stories, especially in Asteroid City, which feels like a surreal film of the 50s or 60s. Like it's not exactly like a Bergman or or Jacques Tati Mm -hmm. movie or anything like that. I think this is more concentrated of an idea of what's going on in Asteroid City where maybe like speaking of Truffaut, like a shoot the piano player where you're getting thrown into a story with different elements all at w- happening all at once that you're picking up and by the end of the movie, it all makes sense. And I guess for American films, like Magnolia comes to mind. Yeah, PTA's yeah. film is like something that American audiences 
like today are even struggling to like interpret fully, which is totally understandable. And it feels like Wes Anderson is riffing on surreal films like that structurally and thematically. Yeah, in now, City. now I'm just thinking I want to see Tom Cruise like join the Anderson company. Oh my God. <laughs> I would love that. Um, but yeah, no, it's funny because we talked be like sick. just uh, because Bo was afraid just came out so closely with us. We talked yeah. a lot about those same influences uh, when we were having the conversation about Ari, yeah, Ari Aster's influences. Yeah. It's kind of funny that like Asteroid City is one of the more meta surreal films from Anderson's filmography at this moment because of Bo is Afraid coming out so recently. I wasn't expecting my two favorite movies this year so far to be like (laughs) surreal films that are absurd psychological dramas more than the traditional things I expect from those directors like the horror elements from Ari or the comedy elements from Anderson. Mm -hmm. So the fact that we got like really more muted dialogue in these two movies that are both pretty dry with their humor. Even if Bo is like, I would say Bo is like way more it's laugh out loud. Like, funny. Yeah. I mean, to like us, spiking not charts. to everybody. Yeah. Apparently the <laughs> yeah, movie yeah. made no money. <laughs> A lot of people walked out of our screen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, obviously both movies are visually absurd, but Bo is also, I think more visually absurd. It's still fascinating to me that both films are releasing around the pandemic time because audiences are so vulnerable right now. And then I think seeing these movies that are so uh, uh, intense in how and how different they are stylistically from anything else. Characters feeling trapped. Yeah. Yeah. And it almost feels you almost feel delirious watching them. So I think they're kind of special in that way. So I love that there are two of my favorite movies this year. I'm just surprised they're happening at the same time. So I think Asteroid City is like really an evolution of everything we intellectually care about with Wes Anderson and his films. And I'm not sure if this movie is supposed to provoke any kind of emotional response that I think both of you, both of us wanted. Like, I think I was expecting to be more emotionally invested in this movie. And when you walk out and you're not, I think that's a little bit confusing when you go into it, expecting that with Wes. But I do feel like I was watching someone similarly lose their mind making this movie (laughs) and then like reflecting on their life and the roles they play in their life. And I found myself thinking about the own, my own like roles I play in my life. Yeah. Yeah. Not to be too heady about it. Like, I know that's literally what the movie's about. Yeah. Yeah. It's like talking about all the different hats we wear, like you as like a, like a cynical son or (laughs) it could be a, a, a flawed husband or a teacher who's just trying to make the, uh, trying to get to the end of the day or, or whatever, like the different kind of acts that we're all doing to perform in life. And I, I found that to be, uh, I found that to be a unique message in, in all of his movies. So yeah, after 24 hours, I'm like, I'm leaning toward this being one of my favorite West movies. So I'm That's really happy so with interesting. it. I have to, I always love Wes Anderson movies when I watch them, them the second time, just because mm-hmm. there is the aspect of being just so much thrown at you in every movie. But this one specifically, I don't know if I'll go back and be like, this was one of my favorites. I, yeah. I can't imagine I'll like flip that much, but I did definitely really like it. And I think the reason I, I really enjoyed it and I wasn't laughing out loud like I do in some other ones because yeah. there's more absurdity. And I, well, I don't know. There's not more absurdity, but again, there's this drier humor. And it also feels like the editing maybe isn't as quick. I feel like I'm lingering with a lot of these characters for a longer time. Yeah. But something that I really. A lot of whip pans instead of editing in this one. Yeah. He does that a lot in some movies, but recently I think he's been doing more edits. But this movie specifically, he's more like kind of doing a lot of steady cam shots and then turning yeah. the camera to other yeah. characters. Yeah. So I'm. And again, like, I think I'm more focused on the characters and them talking because it is a play mm-hmm. like you're talking about. But again, Asteroid City is 
I liked it because I was definitely thinking about what you're talking about, where Wes Anderson is commenting on the absurdity of performance in our own lives or like our own play, which is our own reality. Yeah. And (laughs) how there's so much uncertainty, but we're all still searching for connection and answers that we realistically won't ever get. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, you know, we're, we're like making meaning out of these various things, like the vending machines of like buying land, (laughs) like, right. And then one of the funniest bits I've seen in a while. Yeah. Yeah. And then we have, you know, there was like the comment on narcissism. There was that, I guess uh, on the Broadway scene in the background, right. We're like living in our own world, like this, like main character mentality uh, while we're surrounded (laughs) by violence and chaos, like the atomic bomb testing going on. Yeah. In the background while, while people are eating, you know, lunch uh, and having pancakes. So I I love that aspect of the film. And I think like it, it really, it was in the dialogue in different places, but especially when one of the actors says like, I still don't understand the play. Right. And the response is like, well, it doesn't matter. Just like keep telling the story, yes. right? Like you're going to keep Jason living Schwartzman life to Adrian Brody yeah. and you're never going to understand <laughs> what's, yes. what's going on. So I, I just love that. Like kind of play on these existential thoughts. Yeah. Us like playing a character in our own reality. And uh, also the meta of telling a story like as Wes Anderson. <laughs> yeah, that's the part I want to get into. I think let's let's dive deeper into Asteroid City with spoilers. Like this being a story within a story within a story, it's kind of difficult to fully talk about, but we're going to try our best today in like a reaction way. Somewhere in all these stories that are being told in this movie, there are like moments of real life that are I think sometimes difficult to interpret and Wes loves to blur the line between fantasy and reality in all of his films. But again, I think this movie, like we've been saying is probably his most surreal because it's like an exploration of the ways people perform and act in order to survive life. So the film is broken into like a three act structure and into chapters that the literal play is apparently broken up into. And I think when we do a deep dive, we'll probably go chapter by chapter because I have a lot of questions about the way that some of these layers are being peeled back in specific parts of the films that I'm not quite, I'm not quite there yet with the films, uh, what it's saying completely. But I, I think for today's reaction, let's talk about the three parallel stories, at least on the surface and what's going on. And maybe specifically we can talk about the asteroid city play. Yeah. I I think that's the story that is probably most accessible to both of us and maybe all audiences right now. Probably. Right. Yeah. It's like the movie. And then we have the, yeah, I think I I, zooming out when we do the deeper dive next week, maybe we can talk more in depth about the actors portion, like preparing for the play with Adrian Brody. And then also the, um, Edward Norton. Piece. Yeah. So let me at least set that up. So we understand the surface of where we are. Yeah. So like Anderson's film is a meta narrative. So of course we have like a narrator or a host, which is Brian Cranston's character, yeah. which I think he's <laughs> literally just called a host. And I think the program he's hosting is like an unnamed television show. It's, it's unclear. It's like covering the making of Asteroid City. This yeah, play. it seemed like a PBS thing or something, right? Where they're yeah, like covering there's definitely a reference the making of a play yeah, of somebody I, yeah. from the 50s that I'm just unaware of. Yeah. So listeners, Same. let us know. Yeah. So as Cranston narrates, he is breaking the fourth wall, which it, <laughs> it comes in handy for funny beats at one point. <laughs> yeah. um, he's basically used as a surrogate for Wes Anderson talking to the audience, which I appreciate in all of Anderson's films where he does this. I think famously the old man from Moonrise Kingdom 
who narrates the story the whole yeah, film. Yeah, with the red beanie. Yeah. Right. That's one of the, the more popular ones. So because we have this stand-in for Wes Anderson, Cranston is essentially holding the audience's hand while I think at the same time, like slapping it away sometimes, <laughs> like never really making us feel too comfortable, which I appreciate. <laughs> and Cranston explains that there are three stories running parallel to each other. You have the story of Conrad Earp, who is played by Edward Norton, yeah. who you were just talking about. He is the playwright of Asteroid City. You have the story of the actors who are playing characters in Earp's play. And that's really led by Jason Schwartzman's actor. And then you have the story of the literal Asteroid City play unfolding as like the major story of the film, which again is like the most accessible to us because it is most like a Wes Anderson traditional movie. If there is such a thing within his canon. (laughs) Right. So this whole film is kind of like a meta documentary on the making of a Wes Anderson movie (laughs) by using like New York Broadway and Hollywood elements to like show how Wes Anderson makes a film and also unpacking maybe what his quote unquote intentions are when writing characters or what those characters motivations are and how he struggles to understand those completely. And maybe why he chooses to have a specific style, which again, this movie I think will be, I think people will look back at asteroid city in the future. I love doing that. I love like thinking like 10 years later, what will people think of this movie revisited? It feels like an encyclopedia of like other Wes Anderson movies. If you want to understand how he makes things, this is like a making of, (laughs) you know, know, booklet to understand his other films. So again, it's a very meta film in that way. And I think Anderson probably chooses this structure to show us what it feels like for him to write a story. And I think he's exploring the blurred lines between what is an act and then like what is real when living life, which is really cool. It's incredible writing actually. I think because it seems very difficult. I was trying to, it's one thing to like criticize the writing and be like, it's a little bit maybe overwrought. But then it's another thing to think like this is an original story for the most part. There's a lot of influences, but it is an original story with a few names on the story and, and but just Wes on the screenplay. And that makes it even more impressive because you have this multi parallel story and it and it can be overwhelming, but you can't help but respect the structure because it's so calm in its chaos and it's exaggerated choices like crazy things are happening, but the movie feels so calm. Yeah. And and like, well, wait, is it a original screenplay? Because I thought it said it was based off of a book. No. No? No. Oh, maybe they were saying Wes Anderson wrote a book. There the was Q&A. a story that he wrote with other people and then he wrote the script off the story. Oh, okay. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah I couldn't hear it completely in the Q&A, but yeah. I think you're right. This idea of like the chaos and the <laughs> the idea of like un- not understanding the choices that you might make and like having to put a narrative around those or mm-hmm. just keep going without answers. Like when Jason Schwartzman's character um, asks like, why do I burn my hand in yes. this scene? Yeah. Right? He like wants to know. And he says, I don't like, he doesn't really have an answer for him. Yeah. And then also when Jeff Goldblum, when we find out that oh my he's God. the alien. <laughs> so awesome. Oh my God. And, so good. and he's like talking about how the alien's a metaphor. Yes. It's just <laughs> so funny. Like the way that people even talk about Wes Anderson movies, um, which I, I don't know. It was just, it was really yeah, funny. It was, like it was almost saying, like he was speaking to critics who talk about yeah, his movies. Like he was making he was doing an absurd play on mm-hmm. not only him writing a story 
not only actors asking him for answers yes. and us searching for answers in our real life, yeah. but also like how people talk about his art. <laughs> yeah. So you don't think that's like navel gazing or like overly pretentious or anything, right? Or I like, don't think so. I, I mean, I can understand why people would view, view it as pretentious. Or like I can't do it. That's why I laugh. Asked, yeah. I personally, like, I just love Wes Anderson. Yeah. And again, like he has such a unique style that I, I want to keep watching whatever he's making verse like a, an action movie. Like I feel like those yeah. are more, uh, maybe like self-serious in no, an absurd way. Totally agree. I was asking because I think someone is probably thinking that while that, listening to yeah. this. And I, and I, and I think do it's fair get that like, yeah. But I do think there are only a few postmodern filmmakers who are really commenting on this like crazy chaotic world we're living in where film films are all inspired and influenced by everything in the past century. And it's there's no such thing as making anything original anymore. And Wes Anderson is just a really good example of someone being really aware of that, like hyper aware of that. So I do think all of his movies are like well-intended, even this one that is like kind of a how-to of like what it's like to be Wes Anderson and make movies. <laughs> um, yeah. So anyways... Brian Cranston's character is telling the audience, us, that Conrad Earp, played by Edward Norton, one of my favorite Norton performances in a while, is riding a Interesting. play. Interesting. I don't feel the same. Really? Yeah. I also think that for Tom Hanks, and you know I'm not a big Tom Hanks guy, but this huh. is one of my favorite Hanks performances. I don't know. Okay. I think we'll get yeah. to that in the deeper dive okay. when we have quotes to pull from. Um, but Edward Norton's character is riding a play called Asteroid City, like I said. But he's also unclear of all of his characters' motivations yeah. and intentions, and he doesn't know how to end the story yet. And he's a pretty existential dude. So we learn that the play is essentially like a Stepford Wives satire on conformity and uh, a story that is trying to psychologize how the characters in Asteroid City operate when, like, their human condition is at its worst because everyone's like grieving in this story. A lot of people are grieving. And interestingly, the play is set in September 1955 and Earp is writing this play throughout the whole movie and each act that he's writing is getting more and more absurd. Yeah. And Earp starts like <laughs> resonating with the lead character, Augie. I think that's how you say his name. I think so, yeah. Played by Jason Schwartzman. And Earp, I think, even has a romantic relationship with the actor who's playing Augie. So then like you have Jason Schwartzman playing both the actor in the documentary mm -hmm. and then the character in the play. Yeah. I, so I viewed that more as like a meta comment on writing though. Like the idea of a writer being in love with his character. Oh, I love that. That's interesting. The whole, there's a lot of like idea of existentialism and of searching for answers, but there's also an idea of narcissism again, mm -hmm. like of yeah. being <laughs> so wrapped up in your story. Like later on, I think it might be Scarlett Johansson's character who says something like we are like deeply, flawed or hurting people, mm -hmm. but we just don't want to like tell each other. We kind of get in the way of our own connection. But yeah. I thought it was, that was almost a, a play, their relationship in that scene where he comes to see him and bring some ice cream as like playing on narcissism that Wes Anderson might feel like yeah. he's like commenting on the absurdity of that, um, where a writer writes a part, like pulling from his own life and mm -hmm. then can't tell the actor exactly why he's making the choices that he's making in the story but because the writer hasn't like really because the writer hasn't like fully figured it out himself, right? right. Which, uh, because he might be pulling from like things in his life, but then like seeing the actor perform it, um, like the certain role yeah. and it's so deeply seated within the writer that he, the writer gets like swept up in it mm -hmm. and then falls in love with his own story. That's like, that's sort of I what love that reading. I viewed that. I, I thought it was like a writer 
No, especially of yeah. what we know of Wes and the way he casts his friends and the way he uses like sometimes real life events in both his life and his friends' lives to like build a narrative. Yeah. Um, I think that there's probably some, I would assume some guilt and also ego tied to that. And uh, this is a comment on it, I guess. So I think that's a, I think that's a good way to interpret that. But I also can't tell you anything really that was said in that sequence. So oh God, maybe I feel I'll like think about it later. In when a few I different sequences, it. specifically yeah. the Margot Robbie, not to skip ahead, but that sequence, like I remember being just being like mesmerized about what I was seeing on screen yeah. and also what was being said. And I was like, I didn't take in any of that. Well, All did, I know is that was my favorite scene of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> and I need to watch that again immediately. <laughs> did you, did you have a moment where you were like, are we only going to get Margot Robbie in the picture? I was really sad when yeah. I saw that. I, I was like, Oh, wow. I said shout out her though for getting yeah. like her, <laughs> for getting her minimum check for, a picture. for for the picture because like she's just owning the world right now and all yeah. Um, I, I definitely want to revisit that scene too because she's talking about how her like scene got cut for runtime and how the scene that was going to be there was the father like Augie and yeah. her in a dream and she's telling him like he has to take care of the kids now yes and we because we see him like grieving throughout this whole this whole movie and how he's going to like leave his kids. It's similar to when we see um, Ben Stiller's character oh, at the end of Tenenbaums? Royal Tenenbaums. Yeah. Like, I had a rough year, dad, oh, you know, God. like it was I got a, a similar from that one. Yeah. It kills me. A similar scene there of him being able to talk to his wife. Yeah. Yeah. Who he needed to talk to. Well, I think that's a, a good point to make because I was just about to get into the fact that these actors are kind of having an ex- existential crisis with yeah. Conrad Earp. Like, all the people on the set are having a crisis of identity. They are kind of losing themselves in these characters and they can't quite, it seems like they can't quite understand the nuance of the characters or their motivations, but they're so deeply obsessed with trying to understand the play, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which again, like we're saying is meta considering we know Wes and his friends in real life and how he cast everybody in his real life. So I'm assuming that must be odd for them and, and how the real world works for them. And, and I guess Wes is also commenting on his own obsession and his filmmaking style, like we've talked about too in these moments. So like trying to find the symmetry and order in the chaos of life and making these like movies in hyper detailed ways. And so you see kind of Earp writing in that very similar way that Wes Anderson writes. And and I think at the end of the film, Earp gets writing block and he actually looks at his play as a way for him to collaborate with his actors and then find connection through them because I think he asks them to help him write doesn't oh. that happen at one point? I, I was listening because I didn't remember that, but okay. I, mean, I trust you. Well, I'm pretty sure he ends up actually finishing the play at the end when William Defoe is like helping coach him and all the actors are also oh, helping is move that the plot what was along. happening there? Okay. Yes, because it made me think like Wes Anderson started asking for help from his, his uh, friends who are also acting in his movies to co-write gotcha. his scripts. Because if you look at Wes Anderson's scripts, they're often co-written by people like Owen Wilson or Noah Baumbach right. and people yeah. who have been, in it, Jason Schwartzman even, who have like helped write him his movies, like Roman Coppola, obviously too, but mm-hmm. not somebody who's been in his films. But I think people get the point. I think that, that that is a kind of a meta moment in this film too. And then at the end of the film, I'm pretty sure they say Earp dies in a car accident, the Edward Norton character. Yeah, he dies from something, but yeah. right. And, uh, I guess, I I guess I don't really know where it goes from there. (laughs) I think we get like, basically we get the point of Anderson, like what he's trying to say about his own movies and making film and then making things in life when it feels like nothing has meaning. And we get all that through Cranston's dialogue as the host. And we get this documentary like lens at writing a script and making a film 
without me totally understanding the Robbie bit right now, which I guess we can go back to on the deep dive. Or like the out. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about the other like outliers as far as scenes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think ultimately what you said earlier is kind of the thesis of the movie, which is when uh, you have Jason Schwartzman's character ask Adrian Brody's character. Oh, who is looks, that who it was? Okay. Who, who looks great in this movie, by the way. Yeah. Um, he doesn't age. Yeah, yeah, he really doesn't. But he tells Brody that he still doesn't understand the play. And Brody says, it doesn't matter. You don't understand the play. Just keep telling the story. Yeah. And I think that's kind of a, a, a thesis of this movie and maybe a thesis of all of Wes Anderson's ability to make any of his movies. Yeah, like that's, I that's guess That's how he so. thinks about <laughs> yeah. writing these. And then we also have that Scarlett Johansson moment that we were talking about before where they have that. They, all I guess all of their exchanges are them acting out this sort of play. Mm-hmm. And we're supposed to get from their interaction at the end. I think that we are all the alien like mm-hmm. we are the strange and unknown right um, yeah and so like we are looking for connection and meaning as the characters are throughout this movie um but we can also get in our own way as she talked about she's i think she said like we're two catastrophically wounded people right or something yeah and, uh, but we don't we just don't want to tell each other who we are or right. no we don't tell each other who we are because we don't want to right something like that but yeah and and so the picture of Scarlett Johansson hanging up in a, a similar pose mm-hmm. next to the alien, like that was very clear that he was talking about like, we are the alien. Yeah. And I we also, see each other as aliens. Maybe we just kind of dropped that whole point, but we really didn't make a big deal out of it, but there's aliens in this movie. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> it yeah. has big close encounters vibes, even though I know that wasn't a direct influence because Wes just talked about that last night, but you can feel like there's some kind of like Spielberg in the back of his subconscious. I, I, I am going to assume just because there feels like so much close encounters in the quarantine that doesn't really exist in this film. And also like the fact that aliens exist in the, in the kind of like the sounds that Augie's son is picking up and noises that he's yeah. picking up. And just, I love that. Uh, I don't forget the actor, but the guy who plays Hugo in succession, he's like, beep, 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 boop, boop, boop. Oh, I'll, I'll remember. <laughs> I think it's Fisher Stevens. Uh, but Let's talk about Asteroid City and our favorite parts of being in Asteroid City because okay, we can yeah. talk more about the other stories in a deep dive, but there are like a lot of major subplots running through this kind of play in Asteroid City and there's a lot of subtext in it that I want to unpack. So Asteroid City is a kind of like an absurd microcosm of society, I guess, yeah. and like how yeah. people function in a, in a chaotic world and we're following the Steenbeck family on a road trip their car breaks down in Asteroid City. The father is Augie, which is Jason Schwartzman, and he's taking care of his son, Woodrow, and his three daughters. I guess they're triplets. They're really cute and really funny. <laughs> yeah, I love when they're like, uh, there's the waiter or server who's like, well, what do you like princesses want? What can I get you? Yeah. And they're like, I'm not a princess. I'm a monster. Like, I'm, I'm a, a witch. witch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I hope they get more roles in the future. Yeah. On this road trip, I think their plan, the family plan, is to see their mother's grandfather, who's played by Tom Hanks. And also, I think Woodrow, the son, wants to enter a science competition in Asteroid City. So they had a a plan of staying there all along. And that son is played by Jake Ryan, who has been in other West movies, I think, specifically Moonrise Kingdom. Yeah. mm -hmm. And I think he might be my favorite performance in this movie after Schwartzman. I think Jake Ryan does such a great job in this film. And he seemed like maybe the only normal person at the Q&A last night. <laughs> yeah. Every, I mean, everyone was stressed in that Q&A. Yeah, I don't know was what tough. was happening. And they were uh, all feeling awkward about giving too long of answers. But yeah, I'll, also, I don't know why I was like, wow, Jake Ryan's your favorite. Like, he's definitely up there for me. I just okay. don't have a 
like a specific Didn't make favorite. a ranking. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like Wes, I'm just like, while mid-watching, I'm just letterboxed brain, <laughs> just organizing everything in my head from favorite characters. Letterboxd in the future is just going to go into like Uber a Google, It's going to become a Google Doc be, for movies. Yeah, it's going to be yeah. like, what are the characters, like rank the characters sheet. in this movie. It's going <laughs> to just like go. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, that's probably a nightmare gamifying movies that way, but it sounds <laughs> yeah. like a good time. So the major conflict in this family at the top of the film or top of the, like being introduced to Asteroid City is that Augie has not told his kids that their mother is dead. And I guess she's been dead for three weeks. And when he tells them, it's it's really darkly funny. Yeah. It's obviously tragic, but it, the way he tells them is kind of funny because he's keeping her ashes in Tupperware, like yeah. the whole trip. <laughs> and the daughters are trying to bury her Tupperware and the ashes in her Tupperware in Asteroid City. In the backdrop of like the entire movie, you can see the daughters running around like and just... Oh, I didn't notice them in the back. And they kept trying to bury things. (laughs) Uh, Some other subplots that are going on throughout the film are, I guess we'll just go in order. I think we're introduced to the science program for the competitive, sad, genius kids run by like this government-funded science program. And I think there's like four or five funny genius kids and all the actors are great. Yeah, I loved the performances for all the kids. uh, But I specifically liked uh the character of one of the teenagers who was like dare me to do this want to see me do this (laughs) it felt like anderson just wrote what he observes maybe in so many little boys what what they're doing and we have a sweet moment at the end where he tells his dad and steve carell um like this this honest thing about why he's doing that he's Mm -hmm. like i just want to feel seen it almost felt like an origin story for dignan the bottle rocket oh my god owen wilson character yeah that makes so much sense (laughs) i kept thinking about him and then i also loved the other like little kids on the field trip which maybe we'll talk more about but um yeah and and the kind of juxtaposition between like kids um and the adults who are grieving mm-hmm. uh, while they're stuck in this existential like trap that's a good that way felt interesting. to put it like the curious children including the teenagers but the kids on the field trip mm-hmm. how curious they are and even tilda swinton's character i think one, at one point tells uh uh jake ryan's character like keep that curiosity that's right. what's going to get you through life basically while all the adults seem like they're slowly dying yeah which is fascinating um, before we get to the kids on the field trip, I want to talk about the really odd hotel manager played by Steve Carell, yeah. who is trying <laughs> to sell visor. stock. I love the visor, but he's trying to sell stock to Asteroid City <laughs> Land through vending machines. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen anything like this. I felt like songs from a second floor or something. It was, it was so absurd. One of my favorite details. I just loved how the vending machines looked yeah. too, right? And Wes Anderson in the Q&A said that uh, he has those in his like house that he lives in in England. He like has the vending machine. He lives in England. I I guess that's maybe one of the places he lives, but, um, but yeah, I love Steve Carell at this point, like trying to sell someone land. Yeah. And then he's like, (laughs) well, it's really a loan. I love that. Yeah. You know, and then it's an investment in like the community and you don't really own it. And then, you know, later on he has this like romantic notion after the alien comes of Mm -hmm. stargazers coming to live here because the alien um, I, I was going to say invasion, but really just the alien landing. Yeah. And then the kid is like jingling money, right. To buy in early. Yes. Like, <laughs> so I love the <laughs> idea of like capitalism as the vending machine bit, yeah. uh, writing here. Yeah. And then the kids like learning that they can get in early on this investment opportunity, essentially like that is what happens. Um, 
in I, this alien landing thing. It's like the most wild thing. I thought they were going to like go full circle with the bit and like somebody else was going to try to buy land, but they were going to be sold out of like oh, the vending okay. machine. And I was like yeah. really hoping for that full <laughs> circle uh, comment there. But that was one of the funniest bits I've seen in a minute. I haven't seen anything like that, quite like that. Almost like a Putney Swope, Robert Downey movie. It was like a real high sat- satire moment. Yeah, I just love it, like how that is what comes out of it instead of this like this shock yeah. of an alien coming, right? That's true. Yeah. yeah. And then we get to the kids, the group of elementary school children led by like the enthusiastic young teacher played by Maya Hawk. That's who that was, right? Yes. Maya yeah. Hawk. Yeah. And um I guess this teacher is a science teacher and the kids are on a field trip. Do you think that there is like some kind of comment here on education? I know that James was saying something like that last night, but I'm not quite sure it I almost felt like the the teacher elementary school children bit was the part of this that felt like there was a missing scene, like there was a missing element. I know there was that singing moment where she kind of gets interrupted by the like hyper American guy. Yeah, the the guy with the like cowboy hat. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I felt like I don't know, at first it made me uncomfortable just as teachers because I was reading the moment as the guy coming in and interrupting her because she was saying, I didn't prepare a lesson plan on the alien. So like, let's stick to Neptune. And <laughs> yeah. I don't want to like evade your questions, yeah, yeah. but I, I just don't have answers yet. So let's like stick to what we know. So mm-hmm. I view that scene as like interrupting her twice as the idea of like education can't respond to current problems in certain ways. Okay. Or, um, and the reason it made me uncomfortable, like as and educators because the teacher is like the face of that when obviously we know that's a problem uh, from taxpayers and who we decide to put in charge of education decisions. Right. Um, Or like, so it would be more so the citizens of asteroid city who are responsible for the, the truth not being delivered to children or whatever. It's not like the teacher's fault. So, um, but then there's also another piece that I've thought about it where if that guy is interrupting her, basically what he talks about to the children Mm -hmm. um, and they get kind of swept up in his speech, uh, he says that the alien's probably just like a nice person and like they were probably scared too. And he's a parody. He's like a singing cowboy. His name's Montana. So I think there's some self-awareness there. But then there was a part where he, the kids were like, well, what happens if they come back and basically this war started and he's Mm -hmm. like, well, the U S has never lost a war. Yeah. (laughs) And so I thought that kind of like hasty reaction, even though it was, he was very likable and the children really like just enjoyed hearing that and felt comforted by that. I thought that may have also been like a reflection of covering up the capitalism world of asteroid city, like where people feel like this man of the people who's talking to us is like giving us comfort about the alien. Right. But also kind of skating past this idea mm-hmm. with kind of in- indifference ultimately and yeah. not really asking more questions um, to understand what happened with the aliens. I so, think that's a great read. I, I looked at it as like, you know how there's a, there is this kind of backdrop of government employees in every room yeah. of conversation in this <laughs> yeah. movie, which is hilarious. Uh, I looked at it as kind of like that. Like this guy is this kind of has been indoctrinated by the state and he's just kind of like telling these these lies about how these kids are protected and their curiosity should like stop at the door. Like, don't worry anymore about the aliens. They're they're probably fine. If anything bad happens, you're going to be good. We'll take care of you. So I only went as far as that, but I'm glad there wasn't like more about education because I I think you're right. It could have gotten a little dicey for no reason. Um, And then we also get this 
day called I think it's Asteroid Day, mm-hmm. where like the asteroid that they're originally celebrating or whatever. Yeah. Right. I guess this is a tourist trap where there's an asteroid that landed in Asteroid City thousands of years ago, and the town holds this annual stargazing convention. Yeah. There. Yeah, and I loved Jeffrey Wright and his character's speech. Yeah, um, I love them walking past the microphone giving speeches. It's really are you funny. going to the next microphone? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I really, I'm excited to pay attention to his speech uh, again, but basically what I got is he was talking about he was growing up and moves on to the next microphone, and then he talks about how his dad died in the war, mm. and then he talks about how he like joined the military, and it was just, I mean, it was funny just to him moving spaces, giving this speech about yeah. his life and the mythologizing it, of his exactly of like his putting a narrative on, yeah, exactly on his yeah. identity in this like existen- existential space of Asteroid City. Yeah, so everyone's listening to him, and then it gets to nighttime. Everyone's getting ready to watch the stars that night, and they're like shocked to see, and so are we. This stop motion UFO hovering above yeah. all of them. And this stop motion alien <laughs> comes out from beneath what I think we later learn is really just like a fan that they turned into stop motion, which is yeah, really funny. The crew people. Is it Adrian Brody holding it later yeah, on? Yeah, I think so. Or Jeff Goldblum, one of them. I think yeah. it is Adrian Brody. <laughs> and so the alien sneaks down and takes the, I guess it's not sneaking. They're all looking at him and the alien's got these like big buggy eyes. Like it's in a John Carpenter, they live movie or a George A. Romero zombie film. And he takes the meteor and uh, Augie like takes a photo of him and he's like starts posing right with the meteor. Yeah, he's just <laughs> that's like the best part it's of so the whole funny. movie. I don't know how we haven't even gotten to it until this point. It is hilarious. Poses, I love right? when he poses. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then we cut to intermission optional, which was a laugh out loud moment. Yeah. There weren't many laugh out loud moments where we all collectively I in think the that theater was laughed. My biggest laugh. That yeah. was one of the biggest laughs. <laughs> And then we get General uh, Gibson, Jeffrey Wright, uh, kind of coming back to everyone, not as this kind of like romanticized military officer rewriting the narrative of his identity. Now he's like a legitimate military officer telling people that, you know, he's been stationed in Asteroid City and he's placing everyone under quarantine. Mm -hmm. And he's been ordered by the president to like control the media and what gets out of Asteroid City, which apparently is going to be nothing. And uh, he's trying to like deny the existence of aliens to even the citizens there who saw the alien and everyone who, and I guess even (laughs) the kids and like they start interrogating the kids (laughs) in a really funny (laughs) sequence. And I guess Asteroid City basically becomes like a military state. Yeah. I love the subplot of what you were talking about sort of with the student leaking mm-hmm. the story to the like the high school newspaper that was and great. Jeffrey Wright is like questioning him and he's like the the public has a right to know and then yeah. <laughs> what you opened this with is like he gets that note handed to him he's like it's the president he's furious he's furious <laughs> <laughs> Just throws the paper yeah uh so they do get to contact the outside world world which uh I guess they tell another kid across the world or across the country that they've made this big scientific discovery with the aliens. And now we see that asteroid city is monetizing the UFO sighting by Mm -hmm. creating like an alien carnival. Yeah. Outside. Uh Yeah. And people have like taken advantage of that uh, business opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. However that went down, which is just funny. It's a funny image to see a carnival of aliens and it reminded me of Nope of last year. Yeah. Uh, And then there's like this language that only, I guess, Woodrow, Augie's son, can really interpret that the aliens are speaking with humans through sound and these these kind of lights that are going off with the help of one of the adult scientists, Dr. Hickenlooper, who I think is played by Tilda Swinton, one of my Wes Anderson faves in terms of supporting characters. And I believe Hickenlooper is trying to give 
like Augie advice, but also like taking advice from him. And they're like working in tandem with one another. And she asks him to be like her, her understudy. And she tells him that she needs, or he needs to continue being curious to figure out how to contact the aliens. And then the alien doesn't come back for like another week. And the quarantine is raised because they don't see the alien again. And then the alien returns again. <laughs> <He's> like, <laughs> And he brings back the asteroid they took because it looks like all the alien wanted to do. And this is where I picked up the Wes Anderson thread of how Wes just wants to like create this stylized world of symmetry because he's just stressed out about the world because the alien like organizing chaos. Yeah, because the alien drops off the meteorite and we noticed that all it did was log the meteorite. Like oh, it, it yeah. made, it, they, I guess it like categorized the meteorite. So they just return it to where it was. They just are checking meteorites across the galaxy. And I guess it continues this like satirical thread that the aliens, not just humans, but aliens are also trying to find order. In <laughs> I did the not even think of that. That's great. Yeah. I guess that's what they're did doing. Did you think we'd see the alien again? No, I definitely did not. I, love I that loved we did. the like they all just like freak out after he says like just yeah. kidding. You all have to stay here. Well, I think I really died when I saw when it went to black and white and we saw that the alien is played by Jeff Goldblum. Like yeah. when that happens, I was like, I can't amazing. wait to rewatch this because yeah. now I'm just going to think of Jeff Goldblum in his stop motion <laughs> outfit. <laughs> um, and then during all this craziness, because the movie's basically over in terms of like the setting in Asteroid City. There has been like a running subplot that we have not talked about, which is Augie and this famous actress, Midge Campbell, who's played by Scarlett Johansson. Mm -hmm. They are both kind of traumatized people and they're using that trauma to create art for Mitch. I believe the, or Midge, is Mitch or Midge? Midge. Midge, I believe the actress was abused by her husband and is now playing roles that help her explore that trauma like she is in Asteroid City. And for Augie... He's a former, I think, war photographer who's been shot in battle a few times, which is mm-hmm. why he has those bald spots like on the front of his head, which is mm-hmm. why I was, I think I said to you in the movie, I'm like, why does Jason Schwartzman have like this like shaved corner of his head going on? But apparently he was shot. And so like, that's the idea for that character. Oh, I thought it was just in the back of his head. And the front. Oh. And so the reason it looks so bad, the shave is because he's an actor. Gotcha. And so like they're shaving it because he's playing a <laughs> it's character. It's a role. Who was shot. Yeah. Right. It's a role. Uh, so yeah. So he's a former war photographer who's been shot in battle a few times. And he's trying to make use of his talents, much like Midge, uh, as both like kind of, I guess, therapeutic creative endeavors, but also they are both trying to own their past rather than let it take them over, I guess, which again is like another meta layer to this script within a script, considering Wes Anderson's like mental health theme that we keep coming back to throughout all of his movies. Mm -hmm. And I think specifically Midge falls in love uh, with Augie because he takes photos of her but people in general in pain so when he takes a photo of her in the restaurant and she says you didn't have my permission to take that photo and he says he uh he's like sorry he doesn't have the luxury to take permission so he's not used to that we're led to believe by the end of the film that augie takes photos of people in their lives because that's how he copes with his own pain and loss and i think in a twisted way that's probably how many directors feel about capturing traumatic events in movies. I know a lot of people who make documentaries talk about that, about something they deal with, with like capturing other people's trauma and like trying to deal with that because that's how they deal. Like like they make movies and films and, and documentaries to cope with their own anxieties and traumas. So I thought that was interesting. I thought the like luxury to ask permission was also like where, when we saw that at the beginning, I was like, is Augie going to be another kind of like, 
masculinity uh, comment, like I absurdity, right? Because he's like, I don't have the luxury. To I thought it was totally a, take, like a yeah. masculine, older masculine <laughs> right. comment. Which I, like, obviously I think that line is commenting on the idea of what, what you're talking about, like um, how directors might feel or Anderson might be exploring this idea of, I can't help but take images like this. Like, yeah. Right. People for stories. Totally. Um, so I thought that was like that line there, but that that's interesting. I didn't really, I didn't unpack like their relationship to each other. It reminded me of the Fablemans last year when they showed like young Stevie taking photos of him, his mom and dad fighting in the Fablemans. And, oh. uh, that's like how he's coping with his parents fighting and getting divorced. He's like taking images or videos of them fighting. So it, remind, it reminded me of that because we just saw that in a recent film where that was kind and of And then unpacked. just quick spoiler for Fablemans, go ahead, 15 minutes. or I'm sorry, 15 seconds. Yeah, jump oh ahead. Oh, my God. We're definitely not talking <laughs> yeah. about the Fablemans for 15 minutes. 15. I'm done talking about that but movie. But anyway, go ahead, 15 seconds. Um, just makes a movie to say, hey, mom, you're cheating. I gotcha. Gotcha, mom. <laughs> also, you hit me on the back and it really hurt. It was like the worst representation for white people ever. Ever. Okay, we're not going to do that. Go back and listen to our Fablemans <laughs> podcast. Uh, we're not trivializing violence. It was just no, so no, cringy. No, no. Yeah. But, God. <laughs> Steven Spielberg. Okay, we're okay. back. Okay, we're back. Yeah, you're, welcome back, everyone. All right. Um. So, ultimately, this is a great film. But I, I find myself, even though the Asteroid City element of Asteroid City is interesting, I still find myself far more interested in the meta storytelling of the film, the idea that the writers and actors in Asteroid City are kind of losing their minds because they are struggling to like find the line between what is meaningful and what is not. Yeah. That's kind of the most profound part of this movie. And when this film is interrogating obsession and how people are just performing different acts in life to survive life, I really connect to that idea. Um, it might sound a little bit like sociopathic <laughs> or like trying to, <laughs> when you're zooming out of life too much like that, but it is the way I also think about my own kind of like different walks of life and my different hats that I wear. So I think a lot of us are just trying to control the chaos and maybe like how this movie would put it, the cosmic uncertainty of yeah. the human condition. <laughs> I just really think the the Asteroid City play almost as a, it's almost like a vehicle for allowing for these much larger existential and thoughtful questions that Wes Anderson has about his own filmmaking and his own style. I don't think I've ever seen a filmmaker almost satirize their own material before. Have you? Because I feel like this is one of the first times I've seen someone almost laugh at their laugh at their own stardom. Maybe not laugh at, but I definitely think that's something that we've talked about like in the past, like last year, we saw a lot of Jordan uh, Peele's like Jordan comes Peele, to mind. And then yeah. there was another movie we were talking about too, where a director was kind of talking about the spectacle mm-hmm. of their like previous movies. You're right. This kind I'm forgetting. Of, um, negotiation or like tension between having oh, really Babylon. meaningful stories. Yeah. Oh Babylon. yeah. Right. Yeah. Everyone was talking about how Damien Chazelle was like unpacking his feelings towards what he had made like previously. Yeah, Damien Chazelle really hated La La Land. Yeah. It's like, bro, that's not what that movie yeah, was about. Yeah. No, but I mean, but I think that he, they like both Peel and Chazelle were obviously focusing on spectacle. Commenting and on this, their own success. This feels like a similar thing happening with Bo is afraid mm-hmm. and uh, for Ari Aster and also Wes Anderson in his own way, talking about his own movies yeah. um, through asteroid city. Totally. I I'm pretty sure I love this movie. I've said it like three times, but I'm just going to say I've it. Fourth. Said it. <laughs> yeah. I just need to see it again to know if I love it for sure, but I'm pretty sure it was a really great film. 
again, everybody, if you've seen this once, let's just all go see it a second time. I want to support movies like this. Um, and movies like Bo is afraid we tried to support twice. And like, I think now that Bo is coming out to streaming, hopefully people check that movie out. I hope this movie doesn't have a similar fate where it loses money. It don't, I think it only costs like 25 million only, but you know, that's, that is something we didn't bring up, but Wes is usually very economical in how he makes his films. They often have very small budgets and he tends to do pretty well on them. And I'm glad to see that he's not taking that kind of the Northman attempt at this and making an $80 million movie or Nope or Babylon and trying to make a hundred million dollar film. He's really kind of sticking to these smaller budgets and Mm -hmm. doing the most he can with them. So I hope he continues to do this again. We might come back to this film next week. As of right now, this was the extra credits of asteroid city. We do have a special Wes Anderson ranking coming out next week. We might do the deep dive. I think we did pretty well today. Yeah. We'll see. We we might do a deep dive separate episode or maybe we'll just like tack it on to, to the, the top five or we'll, ranking. We'll see when we rewatch it if it needs more unpacking. Okay. So I'm really excited for Wes, more of Wes next week. We're also revisiting The Bear right now, season one. So I recommend people check out The Bear season one again because we're going to be covering, probably covering The Bear season two. Yeah. Well, I mean, we'll see. I think the first season was so great. Yeah. I can't imagine the second season won't be, but mm-hmm. go back and listen to our Bear um, season, season one, one pod. It was so much fun. Um, yeah. And also then we talked to, or Philip you Barantini. talked to, yeah. Yeah. Philip Barantini, director, writer of Boiling Point, one of the best films about the restaurant industry ever made and one of the best movies about working class or what it's like to actually be in the working class that I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, and if you liked the menu or you liked the bear, like definitely oh, go check definitely out. Check Boiling that Point. out. Yeah. Okay. Also don't forget to follow our podcast on Spotify and Apple and shoot us five stars. We are an independent show and we appreciate your support. Let us know what you like about our show in the Apple reviews and don't forget in Spotify Q and a right now, you can let us know what do we decide what people's favorite West movie is. No, it was the first mo- first West movie they saw. Okay, let's go with that. Because then in our ranking pod, we can ask them That's what their favorite what one their is. Favorite one is. Yeah. I like it. Okay, so let us know in the Spotify Q&A, what was the first Wes Anderson movie you saw? That was the extra credits of Asteroid City. This has been Trey. And this is Kelsey. Peace. Beep, 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 beep. <laughs> I'm trying to remember. It's a red herring. Freight train, freight train, going so fast. Freight train, freight train, going so fast. I don't know what train he's on, won't you tell me where he's gone? He lost his reason, lost his life, he killed his friend in mortal strife. He must keep moving like the rolling skies, just a waiting for...